إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد So the last time in, in the previous session we had started the chapter entitled or the session before that maybe باب ما جاء في حماية المصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم جناب التوحيد وصده كل طريق يوصل إلى الشرك The chapter regarding how the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم safeguarded and protected Tawheed and blocked every pathway leading to shirk. And we had mentioned the first ayah, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ That was the opening ayah of the chapter we had already covered. Then the ahadith which came, the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu qal qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam la taj'alu buyutakum qubura wa la taj'alu qabri eida wa sallu alayya fa inna salatakum tablughuni haythu kuntum rawahu Abu Dawood bi isnadin hasan wa ruwatuhu thiqat in that hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu, he had mentioned that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had said, Do not make your houses as graves, and do not make my grave an Eid. And we discussed the meaning of Eid, a place of repetitive visitation, a place of scheduled and regular visitation, a place where they would set their schedules to either go and do dua and acts of worship that are impermissible, or generally to schedule visitations regularly to a place. And send your prayers upon me. فَإِنَّ صَلَاتَكُمْ تَبْلُغُنِي حَيْثُ كُنْتُمْ Because your salutations, your prayers upon me, reach me from wherever you are. Then we had now come to the final narration in the chapter, and that is the hadith of Ali ibn al-Husayn, عن Ali ibn al-Husayn رضي الله عنه. أنه رأى رجلا يجيء عند فرجة عند قبر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فيدخل فيها فيدعو فنهاه وقال ألا أحدثكم بحديث سمعته من أبي عن جدي عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا تتخذوا قبري عيدا ولا بيوتكم قبورا وصلوا علي فإن تسليماكم ليبلغني أين كنتم رواه في المختار إن ذلك حديث علي ابن الحسين Ali ibn al-Husayn, who was one of the great tabi'een, Ali, the son of al-Husayn, who was the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. So this particular narrator, Ali, the son of al-Husayn, the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib, the grandson of Ali ibn Abi Talib. He says, that he saw a man, he saw a man coming through a gap 
into the grave of the Prophet and he would enter in through that gap so he could get access to the grave of the Prophet and he would make dua there so he prohibited him and said to him shall I not narrate to you a hadith that I heard from my father Al-Hussein, from my grandfather, Ali ibn Abi Talib, from the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, do not take my grave as an Eid, and neither your homes as graves, and send your prayers upon me, for indeed your salam reaches me from wherever you are. The grave of the Prophet ﷺ was where? Where was the Prophet ﷺ buried? Anyone know where the Prophet ﷺ was buried? You know? He was buried in the house of Aisha radiallahu anha. Aisha radiallahu anha was his wife. And when the Prophet ﷺ died, he was buried in that house. So now, this narration talks about a man who used to get into that area through a hole in the side of the house, a hole in the wall. He used to come through that to get access to that room where the grave of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was. So, Qabru al-Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi baytihi, fi hijrat Aisha, wa fi ahadi al-judran furja, ay naqbun, fi al-jida. So the grave of the messenger was in the house of Aisha radiallahu anha, his house. And at the side on the walls, on one of the walls, there was a small area a small gap that he would then come through that gap to gain access to the grave of the Prophet ﷺ. And then he would make dua. He would get in there and then make dua at the grave of the Prophet ﷺ. So when Ali ibn al-Hussein ibn Ali saw him, he prohibited him from this action, prohibited him from going through that gap into the area of the grave and making dua, prohibited him from doing that, prevented him from doing that, said to him, do not do this, and do not regularly go in there visiting the grave of the messenger, and do not make dua there, Prohibited him from all of this series of actions. Prohibited him from the act of regularly going in and visiting the grave. Prohibited him from the act of then making dua at the grave. Prohibited him from these acts. And this, what <coughs> Ali ibn al-Hussein did there, is considered a part of rejecting the evil, enjoying the good and forbid the evil. This action of Ali ibn al-Hussein was a part of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. And remember, it is both of those that are required, enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. The mistake many people make out there, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin and those types of individuals, they are happy to enjoin the good. The Jama'atul Tabligh are happy to enjoin the good or some of it, telling people to pray, telling people to come to the mosque. They enjoin the good to some degree. But the other aspect of it, Many of the people of innovation do not want to get into is then forbidding the 
evil because they see that if you forbid the evil then you're going to make people turn away from you if you forbid the evil and tell people you're not allowed to do x y and z it's a bid'ah then people are going to turn away from you and no longer come to your gatherings and your numbers will fall so they do not want to get into the forbidding of the evil for fear of losing their people and losing their numbers and losing their groups etc but as Sheikh al-Fawzani mentioned it is not enough that you enjoin the good only and you abandon forbidding the evil both of those are required in order for the society to be upright in order for the society to remain afloat and there's the famous hadith that the scholars they mention as Sheikh al-Fawzan himself in Durus min al-Quran al-Kareem for some of you perhaps you might remember 12 years ago here we did Durus min al-Quran al-Kareem the book of Sheikh al-Fawzan in there there was a hadith he mentioned under the section of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil the hadith about the people who went sailing on a boat they went on a ship and the ship had two decks an upper deck and a lower deck some of them when they went on board the ship to go sailing fishing whatever it was some of them ended up on the top deck and others due to space ended up on the bottom deck the barrels of fresh drinking water were on the top deck so the people on the lower deck when they wanted drinking water they had to go up to the top deck grab those barrels take them down to the bottom deck it was a difficulty for those in the lower deck for the access to the fresh water to drink and make wudu with and other things so then the people of the lower deck they come up with an idea and the idea was make a hole in the side of the ship they were on the lower deck so their part was under the sea level make a hole in the side of the ship and let some water come in and we'll fill the barrel and then we can use that the sea water is permissible to use for wudu permissible to use in your cooking etc you can do a lot with sea water drinking no but the rest of it you can do a lot of things with the sea water there'll be far less trips to get the fresh water which you only then need for drinking so they said let's do that make a hole let the fresh sea water come in and we'll have a supply of unlimited water we can use in that narration it is mentioned if the people of the top deck do not enjoin the good and forbid the evil in this case the evil is what making the hole in the side of a ship you're out on the ocean you want to make a hole in the side of the ship certainly that is not something good so if the people of the top deck do not prevent and forbid this act of evil in reality an act that is not good from the people of the lower deck if they don't prevent them then everybody will drown not just the people in the lower deck the whole ship will sink and everybody will drown the lower deck and the people of the top deck as sheikh al-fawzan he said that the example given in that narration is the same as the example of society in society in the muslim community if you do not enjoin the good and forbid the evil then you are allowing people in the community to make holes everywhere in the community and then eventually that community will sink if you allow the people to continue upon bid'ah you allow the people to continue upon misguidance and you don't clarify and you don't teach and you don't make clear what the truth is 
from that falsehood. You don't make clear the evidences and rebuke those misguided ways. You don't do any of that. Or in terms of sins, the people are committing sins openly. And you're not forbidding those sins. They are committing sins of stealing and beating or sins within the tongue of backbiting and storytelling and other affairs, gossip between the people. All of these sins are occurring and you're not forbidding that. Then you are allowing all of those people to continue to make holes within that society. And so in the end, if they are not forbidden and those who are upon corruption in Aqidah continue with it, then the community sinks with the holes they make in that Aqidah with the people. The sinners, the Fusaq, are allowed to continue upon their wrongdoing and sinning publicly and openly amongst the people. Then eventually the holes they make will become so great, everybody else falls into them. The liars within communities, within societies, the backbiters, the storytellers, the gossipers, you allow that kind of thing to carry on and occur within the community, you don't forbid that, then eventually those people will make enough holes to sink everybody else with them. That's the example that Sheikh Al-Fawzan gave. Hence the importance of enjoining the good, but also forbidding the evil. Forbidding the evil that occurs so that this evil does not become widespread and normalized amongst the people to the extent that it sinks everybody along with them. So here what Ali ibn al-Husayn ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib did was an act of forbidding the evil. That man who was getting in through that gap to the grave of the messenger regularly and then making dua there is not a good action. So Ali here forbade that, prevented the man from doing that. And here it was even more important for him to forbid the man from doing that because that action could potentially be a door to shirk in the end. So it was something severe. فَالتَّرَدُّدْ عَلَىٰ قَبْرِ الرَّسُولِ وَالدُّعَاءِ عِنْدَهُ مِنْ وَسَائِلِ شِرْكِ بِهِ So regularly going to the grave of the messenger and making dua there is a means to possible shirk occurring. فَيَجِبُ إِنْكَارُ So it is an obligation for that rejection to have been made upon that man. وَلِذَلِكَ أَنْكَرَ عَلِي بْنِ الْحُسَيْنِ على هذا الرجل ونهى. And that's why Ali ibn al-Husayn ibn Ali rebuked that man and rejected that evil and prevented him from doing so. But then, after he prevented the man and stopped him and told him, no, don't do this, he didn't just stop there and go. He then further clarified to the man, by then explaining to him a hadith or mentioning to him a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ to clarify further the reason as to why he had prevented him from doing that, the reason as to why he was forbidding him from doing what he was doing. He gave him a hadith as an evidence. And this is the basis of how enjoining the good and forbidding the evil occurs. The basis of it is that a person must have enough knowledge that you can enjoin the good and forbid the evil with evidence. Because without evidence, then how do you know that it's even an evil or it's a good? How do you know what to enjoin and what to forbid if you don't know the evidences? So the one who is forbidding or the one who is enjoining an affair must have evidence and basira and insight onto what he's doing. And that's why a Shaykh al-Athameen, he gives the example in this same chapter regarding enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. He once me <coughs> mentioned that imagine you see somebody 
one of your colleagues, for example, fit, young, healthy man, and you see him praying an obligatory prayer sitting down. Maybe one day you come to pray the jama'ah, and you see that he sat down and prayed the jama'ah prayer. So then you go to him afterwards and you say, what are you doing? Don't you know it is a pillar of the prayer to stand? And you start to forbid this evil that he did, this wrong. Evil doesn't mean uh, evil with malice necessarily. Evil is any type of action that is against the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So here you go and start preventing him from this evil. You prayed an obligatory prayer sitting down, you missed a rukan, and you start telling him and telling him and telling him. And joining the good, forbidding the evil. You think he has prayed wrong, he has prayed incorrect, he's missed a pillar out. Young, fit, healthy man who was playing football with you just yesterday. But then that man says to you, My brother, yesterday after we played, I felt a severe pain in my ankle or my knee, and I had to go to hospital last night, and they told me not to bend this knee for a week. So now all of the forbidding and the enjoining and all the nasiha and everything you've been giving him has become null and void, because you had not ascertained the reason as to why he was doing this particular action. You, in other words, you were not upon knowledge or understanding that his action was actually a wrong. It turned out his action wasn't a wrong. He had a right to be sitting down in the prayer there, but you didn't work that out first. You didn't inquire first. That's why Shaykh Al-Athameen said, when you enjoin the good and forbid the evil, you have to ascertain you have to understand and recognize and realize what the situation is. Is what this person is doing actually a wrong in the first place? Or maybe there is some reasoning behind it that I'm not aware of. And so these types of things are important. It's not just a case of you see someone doing something which you have learned is against the sunnah. But perhaps there are certain exceptions in the sunnah which he has a valid exception for. Maybe there is some other reasoning or background to that. So the shaykh said, you must be upon knowledge and insight when enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. Otherwise a person may end up causing more corruption from attempting to be a vanguard of the sunnah and refuting this or rebuking that. And then the reality turns out there was nothing to rebuke or refute in the first place. So here he mentions the evidence to him afterwards too. And the scholars, they say, if you especially forbid someone from doing something, especially with that one, when forbidding someone to do something, you need to give them the evidence as to why and ideally, you need to explain to them what they are supposed to be doing instead. Because if you forbid someone, tell them this is haram, this is bid'ah, but then don't give them any alternative from the sunnah, then you've left that person with nothing to do now. He's not doing any worship. He thought he was doing a worship before, but you've explained it's a bid'ah. But then now explain to him what he should be doing from the sunnah instead. If you don't, then okay, you've stopped him from doing that, but then you've left him vacant. So here he then explains to him and justifies to him what uh, uh, the reasoning is behind the prohibition and then gives him in that hadith some advice of the messenger as an alternative to the prohibition. So, he says to him, Ala Shall I not inform you? Hadithan sami'atuhu an Abi. Shall I not narrate to you a hadith I heard from my father? His father is <coughs> Al Hussein. Who heard from his father? And that is. Ali ibn Abi Talib, 
who heard from the Prophet wasallam that the messenger said, "La Do not take my grave as an Eid. An Eid, linguistically in the Arabic language, it refers to something that is repetitive and it comes round again and again. So that's why Eid is known as Eid, Eid al-Fitr. It comes around every year without fail after the last day of Ramadan. Eid al-Adha comes around every year at the same time, the 10th of Dhul-Hijjah. They are fixed days, they come around again and again. Eid al-Jumu'ah, the Eid of Friday, it repeats every seven days. That is the meaning of an Eid linguistically, something that repeats and comes around again and again. And in, refer- or in relation to these topics, it is about a person regularly going back to the graves. Regularly visiting the graves and going back to the graves. That is the meaning of do not make my grave an Eid. Don't make it a place of regular and repetitive and even scheduled visitations. This was already mentioned in the previous narration as well. الإنكار على من يأتي ويدعو عند قبر الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم فهو يعد مفسرا لحديث أبي هريرة يبين معنى اتخاذه عيدا وأنه يكون في الدعاء عنده والتردد عليه The previous narration of Abu Hurairah in that one it was very similar because in that narration it had mentioned لا تجعلوا قبري عيدا don't make my grave an Eid. But it hadn't given any more detail. This one gives further detail as to what it means, don't make my grave an Eid. How? By the action that was occurring within the hadith. What was the man doing? Regularly going into the grave of the messenger on a repetitive basis. So now we understand, don't make my grave an Eid. One of the meanings of that is the regular repetitive visitations to the grave. Don't do that. And the other thing the man was doing was when he was going and making those regular repetitive visits was dua. And he was prohibited from doing that too. So that is also a part of the meaning of do not make my grave uh, a place of Eid. Do not make my grave an Eid. Don't make it a place where you regularly go and repetitively visit and make dua there too. Don't do any of those things at my grave. That is the meaning of do not take it as an Eid. Uh, and then uh, the Sheikh talks about the book that it was narrated in, but then it mentions the other affairs as well. Wala buyutakum kubura. That was covered already before. Do not make your homes like graves. And what was the meaning of that then? Don't make your homes like graves meant. Do not make them void of the remembrance of Allah. Because the graveyards are not places where you go to do worship. In terms of all of the general forms of worship. You don't go there to do your prayer. You don't go there to read your Quran. The graveyards are not the places for those affairs. So when it says, don't make your homes like the graves, meaning in your homes, do make them places where you do worship in opposition to the places of burial. Make your homes places of worship. Make your homes where you pray. For the men, the sunnah prayers are better in your homes in the masjid. For the women, all of their prayers are better in their homes in the masjid. Pray in your homes. Recite the Quran in your homes. And in particular, some of the narrations that are mentioned about certain chapters like Surah Al-Baqarah. Because Al-Baqarah, la tastati'uha. The shayateen, they cannot handle the recitation of Surah Al-Baqarah. So recite that in your homes. 
as plentiful as possible and other recitation generally. So make your homes places of worship. Don't make them like the graveyards void of worship. And send the, the prayers upon me. As-salatu as-salam upon me. فَإِنَّ تَسْلِيمَكُمْ لَيَبْلُغُنِي أَيْنَ كُنْتُمْ Because your salam upon me reaches me from wherever you are. And that is, like we mentioned last time, Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqih, he used to say, when people go to Umrah, the people in their land say to them, when you go, remember to pass my salam unto the messenger. And the Sheikh used to say, why are they making these relatives of theirs as the responsible people to take their salam for them when they can have the angels taking their salam for them? The messenger says, your salam will come to me from wherever you are. And he used to say, what's more reliable? Why are you thinking this person is more reliable? He might not even make it there. He may not even make it. On the journey, something may happen. So why are you giving your salams to your relatives? Take my salam to the messenger. When you can give your salams, your salutations, your salah upon the messenger and it reaches him from wherever you are. So the benefits to be taken from this chapter then, in conclusion here, the Shaykh, he mentions several benefits to be taken from this particular chapter. The first, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us and bestowed upon us by sending the messenger to us. That is a great blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he sent the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the guidance to us. لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ يَتْلُوْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيَعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon the believers <coughs> when He sent to them a messenger from amongst themselves who recites upon them His ayat and purifies them and teaches them the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not leave us hamala, did not leave us without purpose, without objective. We all learn that right at the beginning in the three fundamental principles that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala khalaqana wa razaqana wa lam yatrukna hamala. Allah created us and provided for us and then didn't leave us without purpose. Rather, He gave us purpose in this world, in this existence. And that is to worship Him upon Tawheed. أَعْظَمُ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ التَّوْحِيدِ وَأَعْظَمُ مَا نَهَا عَنْهُ الشِّرْكِ The greatest thing that Allah commanded us with is Tawheed. And the greatest thing Allah prohibited us from is Shirk. And so He sent the prophets and the messengers with the guidance with the revelation to teach the people. The second affair in these narrations is the point of the chapter that you block all avenues to shirk. Visiting the grave of the messenger on a regular basis, making dua there are all doors and pathways that could end up in outright shirk occurring. And that's why we mentioned before, when it was in the early stages of Islam and the people were entering into Islam in those early years, there used to be a ruling that nobody was allowed to visit the graveyards. They weren't allowed. The only time was, of course, just to go and do the burial and that's it. No visitation to graveyards in the early days. Why? Because in the early days, they were new to Islam, they were learning the Aqidah, they were learning Tawheed. So up until that was established, there would have been a possibility of maybe some errors occurring from the people if they were allowed to visit the graveyards. And that's what it mentions in the Hadith. Kuntu qad nahaytukum an ziyaratil qubur. 
that I used to prohibit you from visiting the graves, ala fazuruha. Rather now you can visit them for innaha to the al akhirah, because they remind you of the afterlife. So that was also a means of blocking any potential shirk. And then when the aqidah and tawheed and the affairs became established, then he allowed them to visit because it reminds you of the afterlife. So here, stopping the people from visiting his grave on a regular basis, on a consistent basis, scheduled, repetitive, making dua, was all blocked. To stop any possible pathway to shirk opening up from that. And that's why you see that by blocking that, the Salaf used to say that they disliked somebody going next to the grave of the Prophet wasallam and making dua to Allah. A person of the Sunnah, a person of Tawheed, nothing wrong, just going to the grave, near the grave, facing the Kaaba, making dua to Allah, not even believing that there's any benefit or any virtue of making dua, that just happens to be there and goes next to the grave and makes dua to Allah. Commits no shirk whatsoever, has no intention or anything in his mind, he just happens to be there at the grave and he makes dua to Allah, facing the Qibla. The Salaf used to say, not even that. Don't even do that. Even that, avoid it. If you want to make dua, then make sure you go somewhere else and make dua. Don't stand next to the grave doing it, because even though you know, the commoner who sees you, maybe won't know. He will see you and think, MashaAllah, a man of virtue, a man of this, a man of that, and he's making dua next to the grave of the messenger, maybe that's virtuous. Maybe that's how you're supposed to make dua. So then they go start making dua next to the grave of the messenger. But then for them, one thing leads to another until eventually perhaps their dua ends up to the Prophet ﷺ himself. So the Salaf used to say, even making dua that generally a person of Tawheed, just don't stand there, stand somewhere else. Don't open up the door to the commoners thinking there's virtue in making dua next to the grave. Man, that we should make dua at the grave of the messenger. Another point the Sheikh mentions here is the importance of looking after our homes. And we spoke about that in the initial narration and about what you allow into your homes. And there was the discussion about the TVs and the channels and to protect yourselves and safeguard your homes from those affairs. Also, the narrations highlight, therefore, the incorrectness of praying at the graveyards, because it says, do not make your homes like the graveyards, and in the homes you are supposed to pray, that would indicate that the graveyards you are not supposed to pray. With the exception being, of course, Janazah prayer is possible at the graveyard. The Janazah prayer can be prayed at the graveyard. But besides that, you don't go to the graveyards and pray. Uh, and there's a few other benefits. All of those generally we have covered now in the narrations, in the hadith about enjoining the good, forbidding the evil. Uh, and about the prayers and salutations reaching the Prophet ﷺ from wherever you are. All of those points we have covered in the hadith. So that then brings us to the next chapter. Babu ma jaa anna ba'adha hadhihi al-ummah ya'budu al-awthan. The chapter regarding what has been mentioned that some of this ummah will worship <coughs> some of this ummah will worship the idols before we start that chapter then any questions so far on the previous chapter anything on that chapter before we move on to the next one
So the next one then, anybody want to read? You want to? You have another mic or not? Everybody should practice reading carefully. Especially if you're serious about talab al-ilm, then you should practice reading carefully, reading these narrations, reading the books in Arabic. It is one of the requirements that a talib al-ilm has an upright tongue. And the scholars mention this in their books, that the student of knowledge should have an upright tongue. That you can read you can read the Qur'an, you can read Arabic, you can read the texts and the hadith. That is a requirement if you want to be serious with your studies. Right? <laughs> قل هل أنبئكم بشر من ذلك مثوبة عند الله من لعنه الله وغضب عليه وجعل منهم القردة والخنازير وعبد الطاغوت الآية وقوله قال الذين غلبوا على أمرهم لنتخذن عليهم مسجدا عن أبي سعيد رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا تتبعون سنن من كان قبلكم حذو قضة بالقضة حتى لو دخلوا جحر ضب لدخلتموه قالوا يا رسول الله اليهود والنصارى قال فمن أخرجاه ولمسلم أن ثوبان رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إن الله زوالي الأرض فرأيت مشارقها ومغاربها وإن أمتي سيبلغ ملكها ما زوي لي منها وأعطيت الكنزين الأحمر والأبيض وإني سألت ربي لأمتي ألا ألا يهلكها يهلكها بسنة بعامة وَأَلَّا يُسَلِّقَ عَلَيْهِمْ عَدُوًّا مِنْ سِوَى أَنْفُسِهِمْ فَيَسْتَبِيحَ بَيْضَتَهُمْ وَإِنَّ رَبِّي قَالَ يَا مُحَمَّدْ إِنِّي إِذَا قَضَيْتُ قَضَاءً فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُرَدُّ وَإِنِّي أَعْطَيْتُكَ لِأُمَّتِكْ أَلَّا أُهْلِكَهُمْ بِسَنَةٍ بِعَامَةٍ وَأَلَّا أُسَلِّقَ عَلَيْهِمْ عَدُوًّا من من سواء أنفسهم فيستبيح بيضتهم ولو اجتمع عليهم من بأقطارها حتى يكون بعضهم يحلك بعضا ويسبي بعضهم بعضا ورواه البرقاني في صحيح وزاد وإنما أخاف على أمتي الأئمة المضلين وإذا وقع عليهم السيف لم يرفع إلى يوم القيامة ولا تقوم الساعة حتى يلحق حي من أمتي بالمشركين وحتى تعبد فئام من أمتي الأوثان وإنه سيكون في أمتي كذابون ثلاثون كلهم يزعم أنهم أنه نبي وأنا خاتم النبيين لا نبي بعدي ولا تزال طائفة من أمتي على الحق على الحق منصورا لا يضرهم من خذلهم حتى يأتي أمر الله تبارك وتعالى So we'll just do the introduction to this chapter and then we'll start it properly in the next session with the evidences in the introduction, Babu Majaa and Nabaha Hadi Il Umma Yabudul Alfan, a chapter which mentions what has come in relation to some of this Ummah worshipping idols. 
الشيخ الفوزان says إن بعض هذه الأمة يعني وليس كلها the title of the chapter is saying some of this ummah. So it is not to be understood all of this ummah. Of course not. Some of this ummah only. فالأمه لا تجتمع على ضلالة ولله الحمد. And we know that the ummah as a whole would not unite upon misguidance. It would not be the case that the whole Ummah unites upon an affair which is an affair of misguidance. There will always be a group who remain upon the truth even if the majority are united upon some misguidance. There will always be the Ta'ifa, that group that remains upon the truth. So not all of the Ummah, but some of the Ummah is the intent in this title, in this chapter heading. بَلْ يَبْقَى فِيهَا مَنْ يَثْبُتُ عَلَى الْحَقِّ كَمَا قَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ لَا تَزَالُ طَائِفَةٌ مِّنْ أُمَّتِي عَلَى الْحَقِّ مَنْصُورَةٌ لَا يَذُرُّهُمْ مَنْ خَذَ لَهُمْ وَلَا مَنْ خَالَفَهُمْ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَ أَمْرُ اللَّهُ that there will be a group from my ummah who remain uh, victorious upon the truth, aided upon that truth, and they will not be harmed by those who betray them or oppose them until the command of Allah comes. So this ummah cannot be the case that all of it would go astray. وَإِنَّمَا يَظِلُّ الْكَثِيرُ وَلَكِنْ يَبْقَى مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ مَنْ يَثْبُتُ عَلَى الْحَقِّ إِلَىٰ أَنْ تَقُومَ السَّاعَةِ So not all of this ummah will ever unite upon misguidance, but even if the majority or many end up upon that misguidance, there will always be a small group who remain upon the truth up until the establishment of the hour. فَهَذَا مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَرَحْمَتِهِ And that is from the virtue of Allah and the mercy of Allah. وَلِهَذَا قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفِ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ أَنَّ بَعْضَ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ وَهَذَا مِنْ دِقَّةِ فِقْهِهِ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ وَعَدَمْ تَسَرُّعِهِ فِي الْأَحْكَامِ بِخِلَافِ الَّذِينَ يُكَفِّرُونَ عُمُومَ الْأُمَّةِ so the Shaykh says it is from the precision of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab that he gave the title of this chapter in a very precise way. And he said some of this ummah will end up worshipping the idols. And this shows how the Shaykh Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was very precise in his words, in his understanding, and he wasn't hasty in throwing out rulings upon the whole ummah, as some of the people they do now. As Sheikh Fawzan says, how they come along and declare everybody to be kuffar. All of the people are disbelievers, they are this, they are that. As some of the writers uh, modern day writers they do. Ba'adul Kuttab al Some of these intellectuals and academics and writers, they have no real understanding or background in Islam. But they are literary writers and academics and they talk about Islam and other affairs. And they come along writing all of the Ummah is in Kufr, is in Shirk, is in this, is in that. But you see the precision of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimahullah that some of this ummah will fall into this, not all of it. What will they fall into? يَعَبُدُ الْأَوْثَانِ اي يُشْرِكُ بِاللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلِ That some of the people, they will fall into worshipping the idols, meaning they will fall into shirk. And the awthan is the jam'u wathan. وَالْمُرَادُ بِهِ كُلُّ مَا عُبِدَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ مِن صَنَمَ وَقَبْرَ وَحَجَرَ وَشَجَرَ أَوْ جِنَّ وَإِنسَ كُلُّهُ يُسَمَّى وَثَنًا فَالْوَثَنُ كُلُّ مَا عُبِدَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ 
We already mentioned in a previous chapter the difference between Awthan and Asnam, Wathan and Sonam. What was the difference between the Wathan and the Sonam? In English, often they just say idols. But there is a difference between the Wathan, the Awthan, and the Sonam, the Asnam. What was that difference? Not necessarily, there was another difference. Sort of. The Sonam, the Sonam Asnam, they were the idols that were sculptured upon a particular appearance. Whereas the Othan are the general idols that incorporates everything tree, stone, sun, moon, everything. But the Asnam were the, the way that you think of idols these days with the Hindus, etc. The sculptured idols that they have. That's the Asnam. And the Othan are generally any idol. A rock, a stone, a tree, the sun, the moon, the stars. All of those are Othan. And as for the Asnam, they are the specifically sculptured ones. So what is the intention of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in this chapter. الرد على من زعم أنه لا يقع في هذه الأمة شرك. Firstly, it is to bring your attention to the fact that there are people in this Ummah who end up falling into shirk. And it is not like some of the deviants, they say, no, the Ummah does not fall into shirk. Rather, it will occur, it does occur. And they are basically the worshippers of the graves, عباد القبور يقولون هذا الذين عمله ليس بشرك The worshippers at the graves, they say what we're doing isn't shirk لأن هذه الأمة لا يقع فيها شرك They say because this Ummah, no shirk can ever occur in it وإنما هو من باب التوسل بالصالحين أو محبة الصالحين أو ما أشبه ذلك من العذال الباردة and instead they say, no, this is only a tawassul with the deceased, seeking a means through the deceased, or it is only showing our love for the deceased when we come to their graves and make dua, or it is other affairs that they try to mention, and we cover them all in kashfashubuhat. We covered all of that detail of the excuses and excuses and excuses they make to try and justify going to the graves and making dua to the dead. And all of those are incorrect. Rather, the reality is their actions are shirk. And these excuses of theirs, <coughs> the excuses of theirs are the same as the excuses that the mushrikun at the time of the Prophet ﷺ used to make. When they used to say, مَا نَعَبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَا إِلَى اللَّهِ زُلْفَىٰ We do not worship them except that they bring us closer to Allah. Or, وَيَعْبُدُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ مَا لَا يَضُرُّهُمْ وَلَا يَنْفَعُهُمْ وَيَقُولُونَ هَؤُلَاءِ شُفَعَاؤُنَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ They worship others besides Allah, those others who do not harm them nor benefit them. And yet they say, these are our intercessors with Allah. So those affairs, they are affairs of shirk. And these people who fall into it, they claim to be from the religion of Islam. Everything we studied in Kashf Shubuhat. Some of them, they pray and do the adhan and five times a day and Jumu'ah and all of that. And yet they go do these actions which are actions of shirk. So they are claiming association and allegiance and attribution to Al-Islam, they pray, they do Adhan, Jumu'ah, everything. And yet these actions of theirs are examples of how some of this Ummah will certainly fall into shirk and they do fall into shirk. So he's going to explain some of that in this chapter. We'll begin with next time, inshaAllah ta'ala. These next few chapters now, it is important that you should try to encourage your friends and family to attend, especially the next few chapters. The next few chapters coming up are going to be on the topic that everybody always asks about anyway. And it is a type of topic that is good for the commoners and they 
enjoy those kinds of topics and it may be an opening into the da'wah for them. The topics of magic and sorcery and all of those things, that is the next few chapters coming up on magic, on sorcery, on witches, on uh, uh, voodoo dolls. It's all mentioned. It is all mentioned. It is all there. It is real. And jinn and all of these things that people always ask about and they talk about. And for some of the commoners, perhaps it's a way into the da'wah. Those are the types of things they would like to hear about and like to learn about. So the next few chapters coming up now soon, they are all going to be on that section. And there's a few. It's not just one chapter. There are multiple chapters on that topic. About magic, about sorcery, about witches, about voodoo dolls, all of it coming in. About star signs, Sagittarius and Cancer and this and that. About the sorcerers, about the jinn, all of those things. Inshallah ta'ala uh, are going to come up in the chapters that we'll be studying soon. So we'll conclude upon that for today and we'll carry on with the chapter properly with the evidences from next time. Inshallah ta'ala. Any questions, anything to add on that then? Someone is doing backbiting and the people listening, like we're listening and they forgot about the day someone is doing backbiting. And they, that stays uh, in the mind from they, when they realize after a long time they should listen about They heard all the bad actions about their loved ones. So it stays in the mind. <coughs> so <coughs> a group of people are backbiting or, yeah. or one person yeah. or some of them in this gathering are backbiting. Yeah. And the others... Listen are in that gathering and they're hearing all this backbiting going on. Yeah. And no one's stopping it. And no one's stopping it. Because they forget or something maybe. Or and then what? And then they heard all the bad actions about their loved, loved ones. Mm. And they was, uh, they're going to remember them for all the bad actions now for a long time. So what's, what's about that? Backbiting, obviously, the very act of backbiting we all know is haram, is impermissible. That is mentioned in the Qur'an itself. Where is it mentioned in the Qur'an? Would you love to eat the meat of your dead brother? From the corpse of your dead brother? Certainly you hate that. That is the example of the one who backbites. And in particular, if the backbiting is regarding the scholars, the, the, the flesh of the scholars is poisoned. For that person now engaging in that type of speech against the scholars. So backbiting we know is haram, it is impermissible. As Shaykh al said, it is one of the diseases in society. It is a disease that spreads within the people. The disease of backbiting and the other one, the disease of namima, storytelling and tale carrying. So if you're in a gathering where backbiting is occurring, then it goes back to what we mentioned at the start, enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. Because the hadith about that says, Man ra'a minkum munkaran falyugayyirhu biyadih. Fa'in lam yastati' fabilisanih. Fa'in lam yastati' fabiqalbih. Wadaka adha'aful iman. If you see an evil, then change it with your hand. And that is of course for a person in authority only. If you're in authority and you're able to change something physically, then so be it. But if you're not in authority, then you can't do that. You see some evil in the society, you can't just go and burn down a building and say that was an evil building, they were doing haram in there. You can't do that. The changing of an evil with your hand is if you have authority to do that. In your household, you're the man of the house, you have authority to change any evil with your hand physically. Some haram comes into your house, pick it up and throw it out of your house. If you can't do that, then you change the evil with your tongue, which includes your pen. That you change the evil with speech. If you cannot physically change it, you speak and you convince the person and you advise the person to change that evil with your speech. And if you can't do that, then the minimum is you hate that affair. So with this now, if there are people in a gathering and backbiting is occurring, you attempt to change it with your 
speech. You're going to advise them, counsel them, tell them to stop. It's haram, it's impermissible. If you're incapable of doing that because of who the people are in this gathering and they're not going to listen to you or you will be the one maligned for saying anything and you can't do anything about it, then it is upon you that obviously you hate that in your heart and that you remove yourself from that gathering. Because if you remain in that gathering, knowing what is happening and what is occurring, then you are also sinful for it. You're sinful for remaining in that gathering of backbiting occurring and not stopping it or at least removing yourself from that gathering. So it is impermissible to remain in a gathering where backbiting is occurring like that. And these days it includes social media. It's not just physically in a gathering. You may be in a gathering on a WhatsApp group, on a gathering in a Telegram group, in some other social media things. And there's backbiting going on in there, backbiting of this person, that person, storytelling, namima. It is impermissible for you to remain in those types of gatherings. And this is, as a Sheikh Al-Athimeen said, a disease. A disease that spreads amongst the people, that slowly it spreads, and everybody else is either too shy to say something, they don't want to be the odd one out, everybody's quiet, nobody's saying anything. This is a calamity. Then we are allowing the holes in the society to be made. So it is not permissible to remain in those kinds of gatherings. You have to remove yourself if you are not able to correct it. Anybody else? Ustad, um, read some, well, was reminded of something a couple of days ago about the strong believer. The one that, like, it's mentioned about the strong believer who, like, stays away from the people than the one who actually still mingles with the people. How is that familiar? Are you familiar with that? Like, how do I properly understand that? When we talk about, for example, you can tell us what the exact narration is. I'll, I'll have, to mm, have a look. I'll have to find mm. Anybody else? In that case, we'll conclude upon that for today. Inshallah ta'ala, resume from the next session.